I feel compelled to um, give you guys some insight into just what kind of crew it is you're hanging out with here. Winston um, does two things to me. Number one, he puts me uh, right after Henriksen and right before lunch. Not only that, as I was finishing up and, and, and walking up the stairs here, he pulls me aside and he says, um, Bangard, I just have one thing to say to you. Don't screw up. <laughs> so guys, it's not too late to uh, look to trade up. Winston's chosen as a topic uh, for this retreat by faith of men of old gained approval. And I can remember reading Hebrews 11 and thinking to myself, you know, that would have been so great to have been Noah or Abraham, to have the opportunity to uh, do something really unbelievable like that and, and get yourself published in the place that it really counts the most. And it used to dismay me that I'm um, not sure there's any new worlds to conquer. That is not true. There are worlds to conquer. And in fact, guys, I believe, <coughs> I believe that Jesus has thrown down a gauntlet, blows the socks right off me. I, I, I am stunned and staggered by the enormity of what he puts before us. And I'd like to begin our discussion of that in the book of Revelation. So if you would turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. And I'm going to ask some of you guys to read for me. And if you would, would you please just uh, let Chuck know what uh, microphone you're on and then just read it right out. Jack, maybe you'd read Revelation 5. Verses 1 through 6 for us. Revelations 5, 1 through 6. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping and behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, 
having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out by all the earth. Thank you. For my money, that is one of the most arresting figures in all the Bible, a lamb standing as if slain. Interesting that he says that I'm going to show you the lion from the tribe of Judah. But you don't meet a lion, you meet a lamb. And not just a lamb, but a lamb who's been slain. Guys, God is teaching us in this an eternal truth. It was true for Jesus and it is true for you and for me. And that is that obedience and humility always precede praise and authority. The rest of chapter 5 is about the praise that the Lamb receives. The rest of the book is about the authority given to him because of his obedience and humility. Remove chapter 5 from the book of Revelation, and we have no book of Revelation. And what was true of Jesus is true of you and me. You want praise? You want authority? You want power? The ticket, the gate, goes through humility and obedience. And there is no shortcut. There's some young guys in here, some guys in college, some guys in high school. Let me encourage you to take a look at Lamentations chapter 3 at, uh, at your convenience. In there you will read things like, it is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. First Peter 5. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you at the proper time, casting your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. You're willing to live there? Are you willing to wait for God to exalt you? Or are you seeking exaltation? Are you seeking praise? The Bible says don't do that. That's a colossally dumb idea. Don't go there. Now, Jesus in Revelation 5 is the paradigm that you and I are called upon to follow. The vehicle by which you will one day be written about, if it happens, is this vehicle. Your emulation of the Lamb standing as if slain. And I refer you to Romans 12, verse 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. 
your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Paul is calling on you and me to emulate the Lamb of of Revelation 5. You're a dead man walking. That's what greatness looks like to God. Dead men walking. Guys, you and I have a problem because there are competing forces at work in our lives. Jeremiah 9, 23, 24 has been alluded to several times now in this conference. And in Jeremiah 9, in those two verses, outlined for us are what the world considers valuable, what the world will praise you for. Power, riches, intellect. The world will praise you if you are have any of those three things. And not only that, guys, but there are Christian counterparts for each of those three. How much scripture have you memorized? How many Bible studies are you in? What committees do you serve on? Are you an elder or a deacon? We have our secular resume and we have our Christian resumes. Throw them both away. They are useless as you try to relate to the living God. Don't go there. Competing alongside this value system of Jeremiah 9 is a value system offered up to us by Jesus in Matthew 20. Someone would read Matthew 20, verses 25 to 28 for us, please. Don't be bashful. Raise your hand and... But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Antithetical to everything that the world teaches us about greatness, huh? 
Get down on your knees and scrub the floor, clean the toilets. Take care of the down and outers, the unlovely. If it's menial, it's got your name on it. If it's insignificant, it's for you. And by the way, when you do it, don't expect any praise for it. At least not until you get to heaven. So you get to pick which of those value systems looks good to you. And guys, every single day, that is precisely what you and I are doing. We're deciding. Which of those sounds best to me? And on the basis of how you decide, God will either put your, na- your name in Hebrews 11 or somewhere else. Yes, Art? Can we um, not expect praise but some sense of satisfaction in this life from doing those servant things? I, I hope for that. I pray for it. I wish for it. There's no guarantee. How about contentment? Yeah. And that is attitudinal. But a man can be content without anyone saying, you're a good guy. Thanks a lot. That's internal. We together so far? Luke 9, 23, 24. Let me just quote it here. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. (laughs) Guys, what I'm trying to say to you is that the economy of Jeremiah 9, 23, 24 is what saving your life looks like. That's how you make life work for yourself. Losing your life is Matthew 20, becoming the servant of all. Every guy in this room has a very concrete idea of what it takes to make life work for him. You got a game plan for executing it. The Bible says change your course. That is the way to ruin. You'll regret it. You've been forewarned. 
don't go there. Let your praise be from God and not from men. Guys, I don't know how it is for you, but for me, this is the issue of life right now. Those two competing value systems. Every day of my life is a pitched battle. I know exactly what I want. And I have a hard time saying no to me. A pitched battle every day. Where do I go with this? What I'd like to talk about in the remaining, remaining time is what that battle looks like, what are the components of it, how you get the mindset for it, how do you start to execute. The first issue of dying to self, I'd like to suggest to you, has to do with the notion of stewardship. Most people I talk to, when the issue of dying to self comes up, think about this first. That is, do I drive a Lexus or do I drive a Chevy? Do I wear polo or pennies? Do I buy a 4,000 square foot house or a 1,500 square foot house? And while I think God has an opinion on some of those things, I think that's way over here. That's the small potatoes. Those sorts of things aren't all that big a deal. I'd like to give you four, four thoughts as you consider your stewardship issues. Number one, enjoy what you have, but don't love it. But for sure enjoy it. Have fun with it. That's why God gave it to you. Knock yourself out. But don't fall in love with it. Number two, if you still feel guilty about having so stinking much, consider living below your means. Don't have to. But it's worth thinking about. Yes, consider living below your means. Number three, give back to God. 
Walt alluded to 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Everything you have is a gift. Everything. You earned absolutely nothing. So it's a worthwhile exercise to get before God on a periodic basis and simply say to him, Lord, I recognize the truth of 1 Corinthians 4.7. So I just want you to know that if any of these things that you've given me are standing between you and me, I beg you to take them away from me. God, if it's my health, take it. It's my wife, take her. It's my kids, take them. If it's my possessions, take them all. But God, I know where they came from. And if you call, if you call them in on me, I know it's for a good reason. So, my hand is open. And fourthly, be generous. It's between you and God what generosity looks like. Be generous. Well, that's all I have to say on the issue of stewardship. Questions or comments about that? Jerry, I don't want to. I don't want to send you down a, a rabbit trail, but. Um, Do you see any downside to embracing the concept of tithing? Winston, I don't, I don't see any downside to it at all if I view it as a personal conviction between me and God. The downside, I think, comes if I try to impose it on you. There's no New Testament mandate for the tithe. What I do with that money is completely up to me. True, I'm accountable to God for how I use it. But I have no commandment to tithe. If he convinces me that's what he wants, then I I better do it. But what you do with that is up to you, between you and him. Just money, right? I mean, it could be time, effort. Yeah, exactly, Tom. And that's where we're going next. I think that's what dying to self is all about. Jesus says money is a little thing. If you're faithful in a little thing, I'll give you big things. And he's talking about money. So money's the small potatoes. 
your life, your time. Those are the big potatoes. That's where we're going. Any other questions or comments before we move on? Dying to yourself. Relationships. Someone read for us, please, Matthew 10, verses 37 to 39. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You have no higher allegiance than your allegiance to Christ. Not your allegiance to your wife, your kids, your parents, or even your own life. Where I have seen this play out in the lives of men is in their unwillingness to execute church discipline. Oh, you know, my daughter's uh, shacked up with a guy. And, um, oh, you know, it's just not loving to, to break fellowship with her. No, that's, that's, that's not the love of Christ. I think what that guy is saying to Jesus is, I love her more than I love you. Matthew 10 says, then you're not worthy of me. Don't pretend anymore. Are you willing to risk relationships for the sake of Christ? Do you understand that those relationships are God-given? For Him to do with Him as He pleases. And if He calls the dead in, are you willing to execute? And Jesus makes it very plain that if you're not, you're not following him. Now there's a flip side to relationships seen in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Jack, I'm going to call on you again just because you're, you're too close. Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Please. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. 
Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interests of others. Interesting contrast to Matthew 10, huh? All your relationships pale in comparison to your relationship with me. They're nobody compared to me, says Jesus. But on the other hand, every relationship is more important than you are. Every person is more important than you are. What do you do when you come home from work and you're dead tired and your kid wants to play, wants to roughhouse with you? What do you do when you come home from that long day, you've been on the road, you've been busting your chops, getting beat up, and your wife wants to talk? You say to yourself, wow, I'm dang tired. Or the guy calls you at two in the morning in a crisis. He's just dying in a pile. Who's more important? Your kid? Your wife? Your buddy? You vote with your feet. Because that's what dying to self is all about. Do you really believe that everybody else is more important than you? Are you willing to get up every morning for the rest of your life with that mindset? Are you willing to believe that every single relationship that you have in life is for the purpose of giving and not forgetting? When I got married, I recognized that I was a tick. And I thought my wife was a dog. Now, sweetheart, if you're ever listening to this tape, do we have editing capabilities? Oh, man. That's going to be a long trip home. I thought that I as a tick could get my nourishment from her. I could get my blood meal from her. One day it dawned on me she was a tick also. So now we got this marriage of two ticks and no dog. And God raises his hand and he says, I'm the dog. Want your nourishment? Come to me. There are all ticks out there, guys. There are no dogs. 
There's only one in heaven. That's it. Period. If you're looking for nourishment anywhere else, you're crossways with him. Those relationships are for the purpose of you giving yourself to them. And that's all. That's the only reason you have them. Yes, sir. Jerry, does God promise anywhere to give us the energy to pull this off when we get home and we're dog tired and we just, you know, don't have it? Art, as I understand what the program of God, the promise that He makes to you and to me is as follows. Art, every single event person that comes into your life is providential. I, God, orchestrated it. And not only that, I orchestrated it in such a way as to prepare you perfectly for eternity with me. There's not a mistake. There's no lack of timing. It is carefully orchestrated for that precise purpose. And nobody can mess it up except you. I promise you, I will always give you what you need. Promise. And whatever you're getting is what you need. I see in uh, uh, Christian counseling a, a book that's uh, promoted called uh, Boundaries. And oftentimes I see in, in the Christian faith uh, people who go overboard and then get themselves in trouble uh, thinking that they're, you know, they're uh, sacrificing and, and being available to others to the point where they're crossing boundaries for their lives and becoming doormats and, and so forth. So how do, how do you strike a, uh, a balance there? Let, let me hit that question on the, on the tangent here. Um, and allow me to digress just a little bit. I'm a dermatologist. Um, I work at an, and teach at a university. Uh, lawyers call me up and ask me to give expert testimony in, in malpractice cases. Now, I say that not to impress you, but to, to indicate that in the eyes of the world, there, there is a level of credibility here. Having said that, the skin is right out here in the open. Easy organ to study. Complete, total accessibility to it.
what we in dermatology know about skin, if, if zero to a hundred is the scale, what we know, maybe ten, maybe, maybe. Change venues, the brain, accessibility, darn tough, awfully hard to do studies on the brain. Don't have a lot of guys lining up for brain biopsies. Complexity of the brain compared to the skin, quantum leap. Quantum leap. Now let's talk about the mind. And now we're two more quanta above the brain because scientists and philosophers don't even know what the mind is. I say that because I see a lot in, in Christianity today with respect to counseling that does not square with Scripture. My point to you is this. Is I'm not trying to knock counseling, Christian or otherwise, but simply to suggest to you that what psychologists, psychiatrists, and neuroscience, neuroscientists know about the brain and the mind compared to what this book says about it. It's apples and oranges. So I'm very skeptical of a lot of what I hear coming out of counseling circles. And I, please, I hope I'm not offending anyone here. A lot of great things happen in counseling sessions. But be skeptical. Don't, don't just swallow it whole hog. Is, uh, is part of the scope of your discussion then to talk about what I might perceive to be competing interests for my time resource that God has given me? Or does that mean I'm being a bad steward because I can't do it all? No. Yeah, great question. Very clearly, I, I cannot spread myself all over the planet. So God calls me to make those kinds of decisions. The point where we're at right now in our discussion is to suggest that the guy who says meeting my needs is priority one is a guy who is way off base in his pursuit of God. You've got to put yourself from up here down to the bottom. But that's just the first step. And if you'll, if you'll allow me to, to inch that direction uh, as, the, as the talk goes on, and then, then by the time we're done, if I haven't answered it, will you come back at me? Everyone okay out there? Yes. Your wife having to do with your question.
Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 27. Come on, you guys, build it out. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and blameless. Blameless. That sounds okay. Husbands, love your wives. Got that one covered. Oh, yeah. Um, love her the way Christ loved it, loves you. Now I'm nervous. Oh, and just, just to really clarify, he cleansed you with the washing of the word. That's how you love your wife. Guys, let me ask you, what, what do men say when they get to know your wife? Do they say, boy, that, that, that woman can sure decorate. What a great hostess she is. She's a, she's a sharp dresser. Good-looking woman. Or do they say of your wife, now there goes a godly woman. And guys, I think what Paul is telling us in Ephesians 5 is that's what they better be saying because you've taken seriously the responsibility to sanctify her through the washing of the word. In the pecking order of life, if you've moved yourself down to the bottom... The top person becomes your wife. Are you taking care of business with your wife? Do you understand that God will call you to account for her godliness? Now, don't misunderstand. If she doesn't want to be godly, there's not a thing you can do about it. But he will hold you responsible for your stewardship of that issue. And just so that we're very clear on this, you can go out and disciple men until the cows come home and get all kinds of praise, but the chances are slim and none that you'll get praise for discipling your wife. <coughs> but you better take care of business there. And after her come your kids. And guys, if... If you are not addressing your wife and your kids, don't look around. Don't go anywhere else. God doesn't need you. Take care of your wife and kids. Their spirituality is your responsibility.
We okay on that point? Um, I'm running into a dilemma uh, on that one. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to love my wife uh, as Christ loved the church, um, which means to be understanding and sensitive and all of that. But uh, there are times when there, there are times when what she's saying, you know, may not be right, may not be spiritual, and. Uh, I have never been able to point that out without offending her or, you know, uh, how do I love my wife and help her grow, maybe even correct her uh, sometime without uh, being insensitive and not being like Christ in that? Well, I assume I'm insensitive, and so does she, by the way. But there, there are components to what a man says. What he says is important, but how he says it and the timing of when he says it are at least as important. Now, you can have all three of those lined up perfectly, and she still get mad at you. But there's nothing you can do at that point. But make sure you got those three lined up. What you say, how you say it, and the timing of it. Could I follow that up? I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, this is an area that I, I'm really battling right here. That's, I came to this retreat wondering how am I going to grow in this area. Do you, spend, uh, do you spend time regularly with your wife? Is that a, a key thing Like you know, uh, as far as the timing goes? Um, do you read together? Do you pray together? Uh, what are the things that you do to, to nurture your wife's growth? Yeah, great question. All of the above. Um, I engage her in formal Bible study. But I also buy up a lot of her time because God has a way of bringing things up at unexpected times. Now, for my, from my wife, she'll, she'll, she talks all the time. She's always got something on her mind. That, that issue becomes more critical with my kids, particularly my son, where I'm trying to pry stuff out of him. But buying up my wife's time is very, very important to me. Uh, you could clear me up on this, but I was astounded when I heard this figure the other day not too long ago, 1% of the couples that pray together get divorced. I have, the ballpark? I have, I have not read that figure, but that would not surprise me if that's true. 
Yeah. Yeah. Hard to pray with someone and hate them. Your career. We better move along. How much time do I have here, by the way? Two and a half hours. 12.30, thank you. Second Peter 3. Chuck, I'm calling on you, dude. It's your turn. Second Peter 3, 10 to 13. Same one as Jack. Second Peter 3, 10 through 13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise... We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God says, I think so much of your work, I think so much of your career that I'm going to burn it. It's got no value, guys. The thing that you stay awake at night worrying about that you get up early laboring over, that churns your stomach, that gives you ulcers, that gives you those tension headaches, God's going to light a match to it. Spicing people for your career? Does your family suffer because of what you're doing with your work? Do you not have time for the things of God because you're simply at work too much? Colossians 3 tells us that whatever you do, do your work heartily as unto the Lord. Because you serve Him and not men. When you go to work, you've got to understand that you are the boss you are working for is not the guy in the suit. You are working for the sovereign of the universe. Do your work accordingly. Understanding that you have to view your life in its totality. But there is absolutely no intrinsic worth to what you're doing. Now, excuse me, in this outline, I have not included under the 
title of dying to self, the commandments of God. I take that as a given, that you understand that part of your dying to self includes obeying the commandments of God. So that when God says, I don't want you to commit adultery, and that sweet young thing tempts you, you deny yourself. It's a no-brainer, right? You cannot act on those things. When you're tempted to to cheat on your taxes, you can't do it. It's stealing. So the commandments I take as a given. Any questions or discussion or comments about, about the commandments? Okay. How do I get the mindset of living for others? Pain. That's how I get the mindset. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. Pain snaps a man back to reality. It wakes him up. It is when you are not in pain that you are living in a world of illusion. Guys, I love fairy tales. And one of the fairy tales that I love the very most is that of the Emperor's New Clothes. You all know that one? These tailors weave clothes that can only be seen by the intelligent. And that dumb emperor is standing there naked as a jaybird. And it takes this little kid to point it out to him. Guys, that is the world. That is the promise of the world. The world's promises are the emperor's new clothes. They're empty. And guys, I say this especially to you young guys. The sooner you learn that, oh gosh, the sooner you learn it, the better off you'll be. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot make life work the way you want it to work. That is an illusion. It is folly. The end thereof is death. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. And that is the promise of the world. Get that deep into your heart and never let that go. 
secondly, count the cost. Someone would read for us Luke 14, 28 to 35. Barry, can I ask you to do that for me, please? Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose one coming against him with 20,000 men? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What do you want out of life? That's what Jesus is saying. Sit down and do the math. What is it that you want? Proverbs 4, 7 says, The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. I think what he's saying is, you're never going to get what you want until you sit down and decide, have a game plan to go after it. What do you want? Sit down and count the cost. I don't think these words of Jesus are hype in the slightest. I think this is a literal sitting down and doing exactly that. And you better do it in the cool of the day because in the heat of the battle, it's not going to work. Jeremiah 2.5. I'm running out of names. Thus says the Lord, What injustice have your fathers found in me, that they have gone far from me, have followed idols, and have become idolaters? Yes, yeah, some translations say, Walking after emptiness, they became empty. 
there is always an eternal cost for disobedience. I think what Jeremiah is saying to us here, that there is very likely, uh, he is saying there is a temporal cost. What he's saying to us is that you become like the object that you pursue. I remember being told as a young man that youth was wasted on the young. And I used to ask people, what the heck do you mean by that? And I, I got some answer about, oh, you know, have more fun and blah, 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 blah. And I thought to myself, you know what, I, um, I'm a hit kid in South Dakota. I'm, I'm going to move to Tucson, Arizona uh, with no friends down there. And um, I, I got terminal acne. How the heck am I going to have more fun? You know, what are you talking about have more fun? As I've thought about it, this is what I think people were saying to me. If I could live my youth all over again, I'd be a better sinner. I know better how to get my own way. I know better how to manipulate people. In short, I know better how to save my life. Now, I don't know the degree to which that saying is true, that youth is wasted on the young. But I do believe there is a truth that no one has ever said to me, and that is that age is wasted on the old. If you are an old man and you do not understand that life apart from God is futile, if you do not understand that you cannot save your own life and to do so is folly, then age has been wasted on you. Guys, you don't have options. The universe is hardwired for you to go down a certain track. And you can fight that track all you want. And you do so only to your own ruin. No one gets hurt but you. If you're going to find your life, if you're going to save your life, you better lose it. And most, most guys my age that I know are in the business of pursuing pleasure to avoid pain. They recognize the emptiness and futility of life and fill it up with pleasurable things. I think that's one of the reasons that pornography has become so pervasive even in the Christian community. We're out there trying to live the Christian life and we're in pain. And sex is a great fix.
There just are not all that many anesthetics out there, guys. There's sex, there's alcohol, drugs, power, acclaim. That's really about it. The list is pretty short. The likelihood that there are guys in this room into pornography, guys in this room either in an affair or considering an affair, pretty high. Pretty high. And guys, that is acting to save your life. Don't do it. Don't do it. third way that you obtain the mindset is surrounding yourselves with godly men. Proverbs 27, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Are there men in your life who are provoking you to godliness? Are there guys in your life that you want to emulate? Are there guys in your life who are willing to to put the relationship at risk by saying hard things to you? Have you given them that privilege in your life? Have you opened yourself up in that way to them? You are your own worst enemy. Get some guys around you to watch over your soul. Be a student. Don't ever quit learning. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It is simply saying, be a learner. Always in the process of assimilating new information, not for the purpose of making yourself appear smart, but that you might be more Christ-like. Questions or comments about the obtaining of the mindset? Okay. What are its components? It begins with an understanding that life is intrinsically devoid of meaning. That is the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This too is Vanity and striving after wind. I mean, for 12 chapters, he goes on and on and on saying the same thing in a different way over and over again. Apart from understanding that your purpose in life is preparation for eternity and that you do it by laying your life down, you are striving after wind. There is no intrinsic meaning to this life. It has meaning only as God pours it into it. And by the way, he promises to do exactly that. Meaning and purpose come only from God. Lest the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. 
If there's purpose and meaning in your life, it's only because he gave it. He understands that God meets his needs. That is the tick and the dog illustration. There's only one big dog in the universe. Everybody else is a tick. He understands that he's unworthy. So you too, when you do all that is commanded, you say we are unworthy slaves. We've done only that which we ought to have done. There's a story that comes out of the Middle East of a uh, man traveling down a dusty road on a donkey. As he's traveling, he sees something lying in the middle of the road, and he stops and um, looks down, and it's a sparrow. Sparrow's lying on its back with scrawny little legs sticking up in the air, and the guy assumes the thing is dead and bends down to pick it up, and the sparrow opens its eyes. And the guy says to the sparrow, what on earth are you doing laying there in the middle of the road? And the sparrow says, well, rumor has it that uh, the sky is falling, and I'm just trying to hold it up. The guy says, what are you talking about? you got those skinny little legs. You can't hold up the sky. Sparrow says, one does what he can. (laughs) Guys, if you ever doubt that you are unworthy, remember that little sparrow. That's you and I laying in the middle of the road, holding up the sky. We don't bring anything to the plate. God doesn't need us to hold the sky up. He's got it under control. God rewards. I'm going to just refer us to the Joel 2.25 passage. In Joel chapter 2, God is talking about the unfaithfulness of Israel and all the havoc he's going to bring down on their heads. And one of the plagues that God is visiting on Israel are locusts, and the locusts are devouring the land. And right in the middle of all these plagues and all this woe and doom is verse 25. Kevin, would you read that for us, please? So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. Guys, that is the M.O. of God. I will restore it to you. I'll make it up to you. The sacrifice you made, the price you paid, I will make it up to you. And believe me, 
I know how to do that. That is one of the trademarks, the hallmarks of God, that he knows how to make up to the likes of us the insignificant things that we've given up for him. And finally, he aspires to greatness. We've danced around this passage in Matthew 20. But it is the issue of becoming great by becoming the servant. Guys, I'd like to leave you with one final thought. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And he is saying to us that this is the currency of eternity, faith, hope, and love. But the biggest buck is love. So if you'll allow me a little license here, you know, the faith is a 10 spot and hope is a 20 and love's a 50. Then Jesus says something else in John chapter 15, verse 13. Love is the greatest virtue. Jesus says, if, you, if, you really, if you're looking for a C-note, if, if you want the really big bucks, this is where it is. Greater love has no man than this, and he laid down his life for his friends. If you really want to enter heaven with a fat wallet, that's how you do it. You lay down your life every day for the rest of your life for those around you. Amen.